0: Okay, Hebrews chapter number 12 in your Bibles, and once you have found verse number 1, if you're able to, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to continue our series, Stand with Commitment. Our theme at White Oak Baptist Church this year is Stand for Jesus. It's getting harder and harder in this world to stand for what's right, and we need Christians who will live in to to the world and live for Jesus. So stand for Jesus. This is our third series. We began with stand with conviction. There ought to be a core of convictions that a Christian has that the world does not have. We talked about stand with courage and how it can be difficult at times to stand in the face of evil. And this series, we're talking about standing with commitment. That word commitment is greatly lacking in our culture today. And so we'll look at our fourth sermon in this series stand with Con- uh, commitment this morning and we'll be looking at Hebrews 12:1 through 4. We'll read these verses responsively. I'll begin in verse 1 and then we'll begin together in verse 2 and then read in that pattern down through verse number 4. The Bible says, "Wherefore seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us." "...and let us run with patience the race that is set before us." Together, verse 2. "...looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds." Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And so the title of the sermon this morning is this, A Mindset of Persistence. A Mindset of Persistence. Do you know how to persist when things get tough? Do you have a mindset that says, No matter how hard the Christian life gets, I will continue to do what's right For the Lord, I will be in my place. I will not walk off the sidelines. I will finish my race. And so we're going to finish up our series. Stand with commitment. At least we're going to look at our fourth installment here and talking talk about having a mindset of persistence. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for this day. Lord, another day to live, another day to rejoice in in your creation. But, Lord, not only in your creation of nature, Lord, in your creation of us as new creatures saved by the blood of Jesus, thank you that you did endure the cross. You despised the shame. And, Lord, right now you are placed at the right hand of the Father, interceding for each of us. Lord, help us to be encouraged by what we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, the Bible reads this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, listen here, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, here Paul tells us to be steadfast. What does that mean to be steadfast? That word steadfast means that you are firm in your purpose You are firm in your resolution. You are firm in your faith. And you are firm in your attachments. Paul says, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. He goes on and says, be ye steadfast, unmovable. That word unmovable means impossible to be relocated, cannot be pushed or pulled from a fixed position. Point. Paul says to the Christians here, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be firmly fixed, be ye unmovable, a, a person who cannot be pushed or pulled from their point, from what they believe. He goes on and says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding there means to be rich or well-supplied. I've I got to tell you this morning, I don't just want to be a Christian who just barely makes it by and feels like I'm just holding on for dear life. I want to be a Christian that abounds in the work of the Lord, that thoroughly enjoys what I'm doing. You come to church sometimes and you walk up to someone and you shake their hand and you say, How you doing? And after about five minutes, you wish you hadn't asked. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, boy, they just pour out all their problems on you. And listen, if you need encouragement, by all means, find someone and uh, have them encourage you. But listen, uh, uh, I I don't want to be a Christian that's just barely making it by. I want to be a Christian that says, sure, I've got my problems. And sure, life isn't always easy. And sure, there are things I could focus on that bring me down. But God is good to me. I want to be a person who abounds In the work of the Lord. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to run here in Hebrews 12. and other places, it tells us we're to walk. And in some places, like Ephesians 6, it tells us we're just to stand. And there are times in my Christian life where I'm at a full-blown sprint for the Lord. And there are other times where maybe I get a little gassed in the work of the Lord, and all I can do is walk. And then there are times where walking is hard, and it's all I can do to stand. But all in all, the average of my Christian life, I want to abound In the work of the Lord. Again, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He goes on and says, "...for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain." In the Lord. What does it mean to be committed to Christ? Um, Someone who has their mind made up that they will consistently and with great energy serve the Lord. They will abound. They will be successful in that work. Uh, I like to think of a tree that produces fruit year in and year out. Year in and year out. Year in and year out. That tree does not have a mind per se. But if if it did, its mindset would be one thing. Produce fruit. That's it. Why is that tree there? To produce fruit. Now that tree doesn't have a mind, but if it did, its mindset would be one thing. Produce fruit. Um, uh, notice everything that goes on with that tree is meant to help it produce fruit uh, from its time in the fall and winter where it's dormant to coming back to life in the spring and the process of photosynthesis and it pulling the nutrients out of the soil and a branch that breaks and how it works with that branch to make sure that it diverts the nutrients to it has one goal in mind that when harvest comes around, there is fruit that is edible and delicious and ready on that tree. The other day, Matthew and I walked out into the driveway of our house and we noticed that a vine had wrapped itself around our basketball hoop. And I told Matthew, I said, that vine right there, I stopped and you dads know what it means to kind of take the mundane and try to teach a life lesson out of it. I said, that vine right there wrapping around that that, uh, basketball hoop, that shows us that it has a mindset of persistence. It's going to live. It's going to do whatever it takes. That vine reaches out and finds something that it can wrap around and grow upward and christians we need to be like that vine that says i'm saved by the blood of jesus christ i'm forgiven i'm on my way to heaven it's not enough for me just to lay down and live like the world and wait till i get to heaven and treat my salvation like fire insurance no i want to grow upward i want to persist in my labor for the lord i must be committed to him i will latch on whatever it takes to stay alive. Many Christians are not committed because they lack a mindset of persistence. What does it mean to persist? It means that when difficulties come your way, instead of running from your problems, you run through your problems. Can I tell you that that is greatly lacking in today's culture? We run from our problems. My friend, the best thing you can do is turn and square that problem up and get on your knees and pray and say, we're not quitting until we figure this thing out. We're going to get it conquered. We're going to get it tackled. When the going gets tough, the tough ought to get up and get going. Not away from the problem, but through the problem. I I see folks who uh, give up on a marriage. I see folks who give up on schooling. I see folks who give up on um, on a job. I see folks who give up and they're right on the cusp of doing something great. And when things get tough, they give up, they quit, they walk away. And my friend, that's a bad, bad, bad pattern to establish. We must have a mindset that I know what God has called me to do. I know who God's called me to be. And come what may, I will persist. If you don't have a mindset of persistence, when things get going tough, your commitment will fall apart. And the next thing you know, you won't be standing up for what's right. You'll be laying down with what is wrong. I propose that Christians will not persist in the Christian life until they fix their eyes on Jesus, who has already run the race before us. We must run our race with patience. We must run when it is easy. We must run when it is hard. We must have a mindset that says, no matter what, I will finish my race. Now, we've considered three aspects of commitment so far in this series. We began by looking at a heart that is principled. We looked at a tongue that is persuasive. Last week we talked about a life of prayer. Now I'd like for us to consider three thoughts as we look at this truth stand with commitment a mindset of persistence and so before we hop into the outline just a couple of things first of all if you're visiting with us today on the back of your bulletin there's a fill in the blank outline if you have a pen we encourage you to take notes as you go and the second thought or second thing i wanted to share with is this if this sermon sounds familiar to a handful of you i preached this outline on a Wednesday evening last August. And when I began to put this sermon together, I felt that this sermon fit this series perfect. And that sermon was a big help to a lot of people. And a lot of folks that heard it said, Pastor, you need to preach that on a Sunday morning. So here it is. If you heard it back then, you get to hear it again. Amen? And so if I wouldn't have told you, I wondered how many of you would have even noticed. Amen? No telling. How many of you, um, mom cooks a really good meal and you hope she cooks it again down the road? Amen? All right, the rest of you don't want her to cook it a second time. And so um, um, uh, this one was cooked before. We cooked it again, and I hope it'll be a help to you. Let's jump in this morning and look at these thoughts. Number one, notice the Christian's encouragement. The Christian's encouragement. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse number 1 with me. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of of witnesses. Now, who is in this cloud of witnesses? The Bible tells us that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and these witnesses are meant to be an encouragement to us, sort of like a fan section. And, uh, if you're a sports fan and you've watched sports over the last year or so, you watched athletes play in empty stadiums because of the virus. And, uh, boy, it's difficult when you're used to hearing 20,000 or 40,000 or 100,000 fans, depending on the sports venue, you're used to hearing them cheer for you. And now you do something great and it's quiet in the stadium. You know, uh, Christian, uh, we are called or uh, rather, we're called to serve the Lord, and we have a cloud of witnesses in heaven that are cheering for us, who is in this crowd of witnesses. It's those who have uh, walked by faith. In ancient Corinth, there used to be staged the Isthmian Games. Games. These games were the forerunner of the modern Olympics. Now, there were many events, but the one which received the most attention was the relay race. The competitors lined up side by side at the starting line, each bearing a torch. Uh, In the distance waited uh, still another line of men and still farther uh, on other lines. When the signal was given, the men started to run bearing their lighted torch. When a runner reached his partner in the next line, he would pass on his light. And so from man to man until the finish line was reached with the famous uh, relay race in mind, the Greek coin uh, was phrased, let those who have the light pass it on. Let those who have the light pass it on. We have a rich Heritage dating back to Abel, the first person born from a woman of those who lived and died for the faith. Abel had his light, his. Christian torch, his uh, light that shone bright and he passed it on to Enoch and Enoch handed his to Noah and Noah on to Abraham and Sarah and uh, on to Isaac and Rachel and then on to Jacob and Rebekah and Joseph and Moses and then on to Joshua and then on to Rahab and the Israelite, the nation of Israel uh, then that was passed on to Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and the uh, light got passed on to Barak, and on to Samuel, and then on to the prophets, and then then the prophets took that light, and they passed it on into those in the New Testament, and John the Baptist, and then on to Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose from the dead, and then the church was started, and that light was passed from Jesus on to the apostles, on to Stephen, Stephen was stoned, and then James and Paul were beheaded, and uh, handed on to Philip, and Jude, and Bartholomew, and Simon who were crucified and James the less was stoned and had his brains bashed out of his head with the club and Matthias who was stoned and then beheaded and then Andrew who was crucified on an X-shaped cross and then John Mark who was drugged to pieces behind a horse and Peter who was crucified upside down and Thomas who was killed by having a spear ran through his body and Luke who was hanged and John who was boiled in oil and we have other believers who took the torch from these New Testament saints and have carried it valiantly forward. Now watch this. Each generation has been asked to take the torch, the light of the gospel, and carry it faithfully. We are all called to run our race and pass it on to the next generation. Now listen, Christian. Listen up. When you get discouraged when you feel like walking off the sideline from the Christian life and quitting, when you desire to no longer do your part, when you've fallen down and scuffed your spiritual knees and are bleeding from your spiritual elbows, remember there is a cheering section in heaven who is cheering for you to stay in the race. Now not everyone who uh, uh, is in that cloud of witnesses Died for their faith. Many didn't. Many didn't. Many of those who were part, are part of that plot of witnesses, boy, they lived a long, full, happy life. I think of people like my grandmother who uh, lived well into her 80s. I believe she was 82 when she passed away. If there ever was a Proverbs 31 woman who walked this earth, it was my mother's mother, my grandmother, Louise Atkins, was her name and Louise Atkins deeply loved the Lord. I remember talking to my grandmother's pastor, who's in his sixties, and so she's a, she was a, about twenty-five or thirty years older than him. And as a young pastor, he came into their church, and boy, he had to deal with some difficult things, and it was discouraging, and and he was on the brink of quitting. And one night, she baked some cookies and a carrot cake, and drove over to his house, and knocked on the door, and sat there at his table, and gave those to him, and her and, and and my grandfather sat there encouraged him in the lord and picked up his spirits and uh, uh, and told him to keep on going and that there were those in the church that were on his team and on his side and to stay the course. And he looked at me and said, your grandmother was the reason why I stayed in that church. She was part of the reason why I didn't quit. When my grandmother was 80 years old, she was still taking out uh, girls in their 20s out soul winning and visiting on Saturday morning, teaching them how to lead souls to the Lord and how to love on people and check up on the widowed and uh, care for those who are down and out and hurting. Uh, My grandmother today, I'd like to think, right now is sitting up in the grandstands of heaven with a big old smile on her face. She had the whitest teeth I've ever seen. It was as white as the hair on her head. Looking down on me and smiling while I'm preaching this sermon, we have a crowd of those who went on before us who are encouraging us to take that lamp of the Gospel and march forward and hand it on to the next generation. Some of you here this morning maybe don't have a rich heritage of a, a mother or a grandmother or great-grandmother who loved the Lord. But how many of you here know a Christian who loved the Lord, who's uh, who's been a lot to you, who's gone on to glory? How many of you know somebody like that? And you can be thankful for that. Maybe you have parents or grandparents who will one day pass and join the ranks. My friend, we ought to, ought to be encouraged. I think of people like Mary Verone and Myrtle Valerie who have passed away and are up in heaven and looking down right now, cheering on White Oak Baptist Church and hoping that it will do well and hoping the people that call this church their church will stay by the stuff and stay committed to doing what's right. We see, number one, the Christian's encouragement. Notice, number two, the Christian's exhortation. Now, by exhortation, what I mean there is to prod or to push or to conjole, or to compel by force? What is it that ought to force the Christian to stay committed to running his race, to having a mindset of persistence below point two? I'd like to give you an A, B, C, and a D. Uh, Four principles I see out of verse number one. Notice letter A, the principle of purpose. The principle of purpose. Look down at Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse number one with me. The Bible says... Wherefore, seeing we are also, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and the weight which doth so easily beset us. Look here, and let us run, let us run with patience, let us run the race that is set before us. We are to run the race that is set before before us Now, if you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, you've called on Him for salvation, then you are on the Lord's track team. And you've been given a race that you're called to run. Let me ask you a question this morning, Christian. Are you running your race? Are you running your race? You see, the question is this. Are you committed to running race? your race. When the going gets tough and you have that uh, pain in your side that runners get and you're beginning to feel spiritually dehydrated, do you walk off the track or do you stay the course? Do you run the race? Let me ask it to you this way. Do you even know what your race is? Do you even know what you are called to do and who God wants you to be? I'm afraid many Christians today have an identity crisis. They know that they're Christian by name, but in practice they don't know what they're even supposed to be doing. Christian, do you have your purpose? Do you know the direction you're supposed to be going? Uh, today, we have a generation of Christians who care very little about being committed to the cause of Christ. They care more about being committed to themselves and their own life. And my friend, if you're on uh, the, the hamster wheel of life and you're running in circles and you're running in circles, let me tell you, you're not making it anywhere. Are you running with purpose today? I'm afraid many Christians are content with going to church once a week or once every other week, and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's good enough. That's good enough. I, uh, I used to play uh, basketball, and I coached basketball after I got out of high school. From the fifth grade to the tenth grade, I was in a school that had a sports program. and So for a little while, I played flag football, and uh, we were too small to have a tackle football team. and both in number and in size. We would have gotten every bone broken if we played tackle football. And then I played on a basketball team. And when I was in the uh, it was a small Christian school, and so when I was in the sixth grade, I, I made the varsity boys basketball team. You think, wow, pastor, you must be really good to make the varsity boys team in the sixth grade. There were only six guys on the whole team. All right, And I was the sixth guy. I was the one coming in off the bench. And that first year in the sixth grade, when I was on the team, I got in the game for three reasons. We were either up by 30, we were down by 30, or someone fouled out. That was the only way I was getting in. In fact, sometimes I think the coach only wanted to play with four on the court because he didn't want me out there. Uh, but uh, I got older and I got better and I really enjoyed the game. As I got older, uh, the school grew and there were more kids that played on the team. Eventually, we moved and switched schools and a larger school with a larger basketball team. And I can remember still not quite being good enough to start. And I would sit in the chair right next to the coach. And you know what I'd say to the coach? Put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Let me in there, coach. Put me in. After a while, the coach looked down at me and said, If you ask one more time, you are never getting in the game. (laughs) Don't put me in, coach. Don't. Uh, I wanted in the game. And, uh, you know, I was on the basketball team because I loved the game of basketball. I was passionate about the game of basketball, uh, competitive in nature. Listen, uh, my dad was the Christian school administrator. He'd get us there at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes we wouldn't go home until 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night. You know where I was before school and after school? I was in the gym shooting baskets. By the fifth grade, I could hit a half-court shot. And, and uh, I loved, 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 loved basketball. And uh, I remember uh, other guys played because their parents made them play. And the coach would get, was just driven crazy by those guys. And I remember he'd walk down to the end of the bench uh, during a timeout or during the game and he'd say, what just happened during the last play? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. They weren't, they weren't playing with purpose. They, they were there because they had to be. They were there so they could eat McDonald's on the way home during an away game. They were there so they could flirt with the cheerleaders. They weren't there to play. I remember I got a little bit older and I got to where I started. I, I, I got to a place where I, I could start on the team and, and I, would, I would be out there and the coach would send someone to the scores table to check in. And I would think, I hope they're not coming in for me. I want to play every single minute of this game. Don't take me out. I'm in. Don't take me out. The coach would take me out. Sometimes I'd go sit down. I'd sit down. I'd push the other kids down. I'd sit right next to the coach. I'd say, coach, I'm ready. Put me back in. I wanted in that game. One day, one uh, game I was playing and me and another defender, we knocked knees. Pow. And um, I'm limping up the court and um, I'm in quite a bit of pain. And and, uh, the coach sent someone to the scores table right after that happened. And and I looked over at the coach and, and I said, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and the, the, the game kept going on. There wasn't a break in the action. And the, the limping, I made the limping quit. And, and he took the guy from the scores table and he put him back on the bench and he left me in the game. I was going to play through pain. I was wanted to be on the court every single second of every single game because I was playing with purpose. And Christian, I would say to you this morning, don't be like the guys on the end of the bench who are just there because they have to be and just kind of sit around and mosey about and don't really know what's going on on the court. And they slough around in practice and they don't take it serious. My friend, be a Christian who desires to be in the game, serving the Lord and loving the Lord and giving it your all. The principle of purpose. Do you know what God is called you to do? Do you know uh, who God wants you to be? Are you doing your best to be committed to the cause of Christ? Do you have a mindset of, 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 of uh, persistence? Are you in it with purpose? Let her be the principle of prohibition, the principle of prohibition. Look back at Hebrews chapter 12. In verse number 1, the Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, look here, let us lay aside, let us lay aside every weight, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, the sin which doth so easily beset us. Many Christians are on the sidelines of the Christian life. They're not living for the Lord. They don't represent the Lord well because their heart is filled with, with a lifestyle of sin. One of the Greeks' Olympic Games was a race in which the contestants carried torches, and the winner was the one that finished uh, with his torch still lit. You had to finish first, and with your torch still lit. The Christian's desire should be that, yes, he'll finish his race, but he'll finish his race with his flame still burning strong. Christian, are you living a life where when the Bible says something is wrong, you just say, okay, if the Bible says it, that's good enough for me. You see, Christians, we make excuses for our lifestyle. Well, you know, I I know I shouldn't be doing this over here, but at least I go to church on Sunday. Can I tell you, God doesn't want to barter with you over your sin. This isn't a matter of your goods outweighing your bads. I'm not trying to be ugly or unkind here, but that's Catholic doctrine. That's not Bible doctrine. God wants you to live a lifestyle that's holy. He says here uh, that you're not to live a life of sin. And I'm afraid oftentimes we stymie our witness for the Lord by what we do. You know, it's really hard for you to invite your coworker to Friend Day at White Oak Baptist Church when you're cussing and telling dirty jokes at the lunch table along with them. It's really hard for you to invite your friends to the Christmas Eve service where the gospel is going to be given at your church when you are at a neighborhood party drinking the spike eggnog and acting like a fool. It's really hard for you to invite your neighbor to church when you are yelling at them and berating them because some of their lawn clippings came onto your grass. We have Christians who want to live a life of sin on Monday and then be godly on Sunday. And you know what? There, there's nothing more that's a turnoff to a lost world than a Christian who tries to play both sides of the fence. The principle of prohibition. Here's the principle if God says it's a sin, then it ought to be a sin to me. If God says no, then no, it is. Yeah, but, no, 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 yeah, buts. But but I was born into it. No, no, we're not going to blame our our upbringing. We're not going to blame our circumstances. We're not going to blame anything. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. Finished. End of story. I can see someone who uh, shows up on race day and they have been uh, violating all of the rules. Oh, better example. You know, in the Olympics, sometimes they give out a gold medal that gets rescinded. You know why? They called him cheating. Steroids, right? Um, anybody here ever heard of Lance Armstrong? Yeah, what happened to Lance? Good old Lance. You know, Lance was doing, he was sinning against the rules of the bicycle committee. And uh, boy, he, he looked good for a while. He was breaking. The rule said no, and he said, I don't care about the rules. And I see Christians who are more concerned about living the life they want to live than following the Bible. The Bible says if you're going to effectively run the Christian race, when God says no, you must live by that no. The principle of prohibition, letter C. The principle of prioritization the principle of prioritization. Look back at verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Look here. Let us lay aside every weight, every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let, r- let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Can I tell you what many young Christians are guilty of doing? I, I say this because I used to be a young Christian, and I did this very thing. They're guilty of asking a question that is very short-sighted. Here is the question. Pastor, what's wrong with it? Pastor, show me a chapter and verse in the Bible that says, I can't do this because the Bible says it's wrong right here. That's a very short-sighted way of looking at the Christian life. Think about the track athlete. The track athlete that stops on his way to a meet and he gets a Big Mac meal, he scarf's that down. He gets to the track, and he comes in last place. And his coach says, "What happened to you? That's the slowest you've ran that in all of our practices." He says, "Well, coach, I was hungry, and the golden arches were calling my name. Coach, I went to White Oak Baptist Church and they had a food truck." And coach, it was good. And the coach says, you buffoon, you dummy. What are you doing? And he looks at the coach and says, well, what's wrong with it? And the coach says, nothing. It's not a sin to have a Big Mac. But you can't expect to win your race if that's how you're going to eat. You know, it's a good day in the life of a Christian when the Christian says, instead of what's wrong with it, he asks this question, what's right with it? what's right with it. How is this going to help me run the race of the Christian life? I, um, I mentioned earlier about playing basketball in high school. And after I got married, I'd, I'd go and, and uh, find a street court somewhere and I'd play sometimes two or three nights a week. And uh, even since I've become the pastor here, I've had memberships at places like LA Fitness and On my day off, I'd go two, three, four hours and play basketball. There's nothing wrong with that. I love sports. I love sports. Um, I love to watch them on TV. I love to play them. I used to watch them a whole lot more than I do now. Can I tell you, part of my maturation process as a Christian has been that as I reprioritize my life to be more like Jesus, things like sports that are less trivial need to become less important in my life. Now, for you, it may not be sports. But what is it? What is it? Christian, we must get to a place where we ask not what's wrong with it, but what's right with it. Let me uh, help you understand how serious runners take uh, their lifestyle. Um, For breakfast, they start out each morning with a nutritious breakfast that kickstarts their metabolism and lays down the foundation of energy, energy they'll need for a day. Two or three eggs with one or two pieces of toast and orange juice. Oatmeal with nuts and berries. For lunch, they aim to get a source of protein um, paired with green leafy vegetables. No ranch dressing. Chicken breast fillet on top of salad piled high with carrots, peppers, and cucumbers, or a sandwich made with whole wheat bread, turkey, lettuce, and tomato with a side salad. But before training or races for their body to perform at its best, it needs plenty of fuel. So however, uh, they make sure to keep all their snacks light, one or two pieces of fruit, maybe a granola bar. After training or races, it's important to have the recovery. So they need to give their body protein and more Clean carbohydrates, so a lean cut of meat with a starch like potatoes. Servings of pasta with marinara sauce and a protein source such as fava beans. Before bed, they take in extra protein to help uh, their muscle recover uh, while they sleep and uh, make sure they have uh, they're feeling fresh the next morning. They'll have a 20 to 40 gram. Protein shake, a quarter cup of almonds. The foods they eat can vary, but remember, the best diet for track and field runners is a simple one. They keep the carbs clean and balance them out with protein. Watch this now. Why? Because for a runner to be effective in their uh, in their in their profession, they must make everything about their life point toward winning that race. Not only what they eat, but what they wear on. Race Day, uh, uh, the competition apparel. This comes from the website simplyfaster.com. The function of your competition uniform is obviously more important than the form of the uniform. However, advances by apparel companies have taken the job of functionality out of your hand. For the most part, nobody wears heavy cotton jerseys or big baggy shorts in track and field anymore. Basically, all the outfits on markets are of high quality fibers that are great for performance. Still, having a knowledge of the various uniforms can put your team at an advantage. An athlete can argue all day. There is nothing sinful about eating a Big Mac, or wearing military pants on the track, or race day. But the athlete misses the point. It's not about what's right and wrong. Watch this. It's about what is wise and unwise. It's about what is wise and unwise. If the athlete is going to be at his best, he or she must set aside the weights, not just the sins. As I'm preaching all this and I'm being uh, broad on purpose, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will identify some things in your life that are keeping you from being all that you ought to be for the Lord. Things that are not necessarily sinful, but things that are serving as a distraction and keeping you from being the Christian you ought to be. Remember what Paul said? I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. You know what that means? Some things hinder me from being all that I ought to be for the Lord. The principle of prioritization. Letter D, notice the principle of patience. The principle of patience. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Wherefore seeing... We also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin uh, uh, which doth so easily beset us. Look here, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. When I was in the second or third grade, our, tur- our school had its first jogathon. How many of you here? have ever participated in a fundraiser jogathon? Would you hold your hand up? Okay, a few of you. Here's how this works, okay? They give you uh, mailers that are two-way, with the, stamp, uh, the postage prepaid, and you fill it out, and you send it to your family and friends all over the country, all over the area, and it, it, on there it tells them how far a lap is, and it asks them to sponsor you so much per lap that you run. And so the more they sponsor you, someone on race day that keeps track of how many laps you run, and then they get sent an invoice, which they pay to help uh, the, the charitable organization, the organization of choice. So as a second or third grader, I was really excited about this. I filled out all these mailers and sent them out to my aunts and uncles and um, my family and friends all over the country, some of my parents' friends. And then we came to race day. And I remember in the recess P.E. times leading up, my second and third grade buddies, the boys in my class, we would all talk about how we were going to outrun the other one. I'm going to get this many laps, and I'm going to get this many laps. So they took us to a, a school that had a quarter mile track, okay, and each. Lap, I think, counted for four or five of the jogathon laps, and I remember we all got up there on that starting line. my little second grade self, I had a lot more hair back then, amen, um, uh, got down and uh, lined up and ready to go, and they had a cap gun on the side, and uh, all my buddies are there with me, and I thought I'm going to outrun every single kid here I'm going to leave them in the dust, and man, that cap gun fired, and man, I shot off like a bullet off that starting line, I got about halfway around that quarter mile track and I stopped and I put my hands on my knees. And I remember when I took off, there was that kid who had been coached by his parents to pace himself. And I thought, sucker! Until he came running past me. <laughs> and, I, and, I, uh, and I thought to myself, a full sprint's not going to work for 45 minutes. I'm going to have to learn what it means to pace myself. And, um, you know, I found that to be true in the Christian life. Listen up now. Many people get saved. And they've got great aspirations to serve God. Boy, they've got a new life in Christ. Everything is new. Things are changing on the inside and the outside for that matter. They've got great hopes and dreams of doing great things for God. And just like my little second grade self, they take off furiously from the starting line of the Christian life only to get a month or two in and think, why am I so exhausted? Why is this so hard? How come I can't be who I want to be and be where I want to be for the Lord? And, Christian, you need to remember that the Christian life is not measured in days and weeks and months. It's not even measured in years. It's measured in decades. It's not about who you become for God in 30 days or 30 weeks or even 30 months. It's about what you become for God over 30 years. We have to run with patience, knowing that. A just man falleth seven times, but riseth up again. The Bible says, but the wicked fall into mischief. You know the difference between the just man and the wicked man is that when the just man skins his spiritual knee, he gets up, he dusts himself off, and he keeps moving forward. Have you stopped to consider that in... Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the great hall of faith. Have you can stopped to consider uh, the suspects, the rough crowd that makes up Hebrews 11? I mean, there's murderers in that list of people who are hailed as these great heroes. There's thieves in that list. Rahab's in that list. Rahab was a harlot. But she made the hall of faith. She is the great-grandmother of David, King David, who ended up being in the lineage of Christ. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter because of a foolish vow he made to the Lord. He's in the list. My friend, these folks all fell and skinned their knees. But they got up and they dusted themselves off and they said, I'm going to finish the race set before me. I'm going to be committed to the cause of Christ. I'm going to have a mindset of persistence and I won't quit. One person so eloquently put it this way. They said, although things are not perfect because of trial and pain, continue in thanksgiving, do not begin to blame. Even when the times are hard, fierce winds are bound to blow. God is forever able. Hold on to what you know. Imagine life without His love. Joy would cease to be. Keep thanking Him for all the things love imparts to thee. Move out of Camp complaining. No weapon that is known on earth can yield the power praise can do alone. Quit looking at the future. Redeem the time at hand. Start every day with worship. To thank is a command. Until we see His coming uh, victorious in the sky. We'll run the race with gratitude. Exalting God most high. Yes, there will be good times. And yes, some will be bad. But Zion waits in glory where none are ever sad. The Christian's exhortation. This morning, you may be hurt. You may have hurt yourself. You may have been shoved down on the track by someone else. Someone else's sin has affected you, and you're discouraged, and you want to quit. I want to compel you this morning to get up and keep going for the Lord. Number three, and lastly, notice the Christian's example. The Christian's example. Look with me at letter number A here. Notice Christ's joy. Christ's joy. Look down at verse number 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look here. Who for the joy that was set before Him. You know who Jesus is? He authors our faith. He finishes our faith. That means it begins with Him and it ends with Him. Amen? He is the one where we look to when it comes to finishing our race. The Bible says that he did it because the joy was set before him. The old analogy is a donkey with a carrot on a string, on a fishing pole right dangling out in front. And that that donkey just keeps walking forward because that carrot continues to tantalize him, incentivize him to move forward. What was the carrot on the end of the of the fishing line for our Savior? You know what it was? It was me and it was you. Picture Jesus there that day standing in before the, the mob Pilate next to Him spit still on His face patches where they had yanked out his beard. The angry mob down in the courtyard yelling up to Pilate standing above the crowd with Jesus and they're yelling, Crucify Him! We want Him dead! Jesus just a day or two before was on the outskirts of Jerusalem looking out over Jerusalem and tears coming down His eyes. The Bible said He had compassion on them. He wept over the multitude because they were a sheep without a shepherd. And He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would gather thee unto Myself as a chicken her brood, but ye would not. And I'm paraphrasing the verse there. These folks who Jesus loved are in an angry, mob-like roar asking Him to be crucified. They take Jesus. They strip Him naked. They tie Him to a post. They take a cat of nine tails, which is nine horse whips, leather whips, pulled into one handle with rock or glass or something sharp on the end, and they begin, a Roman executioner who's very well trained, begins to lash Jesus with his cat of nine tails, lash after lash, after lash. Why did Jesus not call down the angels? Why did Jesus not make it stop? Can I tell you why? Because you were the joy that was set before Him. He knew there was no way you could be reconciled to God because of your sin unless somebody suffered in your place. When life gets tough, when life gets hard, remember that Jesus looked at you and said, that's the joy on why I'm going to keep going. They took Him. They ran the nails through His hands and His feet. They lifted Him up on the cross. And God the Father in heaven looked ahead in time and He saw my life. He saw your life. He saw all the sin between your birth date and your death date. He swept them up, if you will, into a pile. He brought them back. He laid them on Jesus Christ. God the Son became your sin so that you could be made the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin collectively killed God in just a few short hours. He died there on that cross so He could offer you the gift of eternal life. You know, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. Can I tell you who's doing the rejoicing? The saints in heaven, the cloud of witnesses, they're rejoicing. Can I tell you who else is rejoicing? Jesus Christ is jumping up and down with joy because you were the joy that was set before Him. Paul went on to say in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, he said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? I, I look forward to the day that I get to go to heaven. I'm not looking to take the next train, amen? But I look forward to the day I get to go to heaven. And um, I, uh, I walk through death's shadow and I step through the pearly gates and I, I can't wait to see folks like my grandmother and other loved ones who have gone on before. I can't wait to see the folks that I've pastored and who have who would have gone on before. I, I most importantly can't wait uh, to see Jesus and behold His face. But there is a very special crowd in heaven that I really cannot wait to see. You know who that is? Those are the people that got saved as a result of my witness here on earth. Those are the people who will be standing there with a smile on their face saying, because of your witness, we believe Jesus. Hey, look, there's no crown in heaven that God could give me that would top that right there. My friend, you and your lifestyle and your lips are a witness for the Savior. And folks are either going to be turned on toward following Christ and getting saved or turned off toward Jesus your Savior. When life gets tough, when life kicks you in the knees, when you are scraped up spiritually and you want to quit, remember, people's eternal destiny may very well hang in the balance based on how you live. Make their salvation your joy and move forward. Let her be notice Christ's journey. Christ's journey. Hebrews chapter 12. Look back at verse 2. Let's read down through verse number 4. The Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, look here, endured the cross. Look at His journey. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Verse 4, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What verse 4 means is, as hard as it's been for you, you've not had to resist Sin with your own blood. You've not had to shed your blood the way Jesus did to fight against sin. Look there, it says in the end of verse 3, Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. When the Christian is discouraged, when the Christian is downtrodden, when the Christian wants to take a day off or a week off or a month off or a year off, uh, Christian, what God wants you to do is fix your eyes on Jesus who endured the contradiction of sinners and stayed the course and finished his race. You know what we're being told here in verses two through four? I can sum it up for you in two words. Here they are. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Stay in there. Run your race. Run it with patience. Run it with purpose. Run it with prohibition. Run it with prioritization. Run your race. When you're tempted to quit, look at what Jesus endured and remembered if he can go through the hardships in his journey, so can you. Derek Redmond was a great runner, but he was an even greater finisher. Derek will forever be remembered for his staggering performance in the 400-meter men's semifinal during the Summer Olympics in 1992 in Barcelona, Spain. After years of training, persistence, and self-discipline, Derek was competing on the world stage. His dream had become a reality. Halfway through his 400-meter race, Derek pulled a hamstring muscle and collapsed on the track. Writhing in pain, he watched the other runners quickly pass him and his dream of winning die. But staying down wasn't in Derek's blood. Though winning was out of the question, finishing was not. As the medical crew arrived, Derek said, there's no way you're carrying me off this track. I'm going to finish my race. In a stadium packed with 65,000 fans and with millions viewing around the world, Derek slowly struggled to his feet. In spite of the agonizing pain, he began hobbling uh, toward the finish line um, uh, in last place, tears streaming down his face as his heart filled with disappointment, yet he was determined to finish the race. At that point, a large band from the top row of the stands began to run toward the track. It was Tim Redmond, Derek's father. Disregarding security guards running over people determined that no one would stop him. He ran to his son's side. At first, Derek tried to push him away, not realizing it was his father. He thought someone was trying to take him off the track and make him quit. Derek, it's me. Uh, uh, The voice came. Recognizing that voice, Derek said, Dad, I have to finish the race. The dad said, if you're going to finish the race, then we'll finish it together. With those words, his father took his son in his arms. And together they began to hobble down the track. By the time the other runners had completed the race, the crowd realized that Derek was hobbling, was not hobbling off the track, but rather toward the finish line on one leg with his father at his side. In total disbelief, 65,000 fans stood to their feet and began to cheer. The roar of the crowd increasing with every painful step, approaching The finish line, Derek, while clinging to his father, came stumbling across while the crowd exploded into thunderous applause and emotional release. Derek collapsed in his father's embrace and both wept on each other's shoulders, along with 65,000 fans and millions of viewers around the world. Derek had finished a race the world would never forget. Roll the tape. Thank you. To finish a race after enduring a blown out hamstring like that. Even when winning is out of the picture. A mindset of persistence. That no matter what, I'm going to finish what I started. I will finish what God's given me to do. Now Christian, I don't mean to put down or belittle in any way what Derek did there. But if a man running a physical race can finish, what's keeping you from quitting your spiritual race? You see, there was a gold medal on the line with Derek and the honor of finishing on the line for Derek. We have eternity at stake with what we do. Somebody this morning needs to get off the sideline and get back in the race. Somebody this morning listening in needs to decide that they're going to reprioritize some things to run their race as effectively as possible for the Lord. Letter C, lastly, notice Christ's jubilation. Look back at verse number 2 with me, Hebrews 12 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Boy, if you have only been casually listening, please don't miss what I'm about to say. The prize is not awarded to him that finishes first the prize is awarded to Him that finishes His race. That is the race that the Savior has set before you. Watch this now. You are not racing me. And I am not racing you. Too many Christians look around at other Christians and think, well, I'll never catch up to Him or that person will never catch up to me. My friend, God has called you to run a specific race. He's called no one else to run. We have to take our eyes off each other and put our eyes on Jesus and say, I'm going to run my race. One day, God is going to look at you, and He's either going to call you a wicked and slothful servant, or He's going to say this, watch this now, Well done, thou good and faithful, faithful servant. Did you have a mindset to persist? Were you committed to stand for the Lord? Are you going to run your race?